Amen, amen. Hey, grab a seat, and as you do, get a Bible in front of you on your lap to Acts chapter 8 this morning. Acts chapter 8. If you need a Bible under a seat uh, nearby, you'll find a black Bible under there. Grab that and open uh, up to God's Word. And so we're seeing that what's taught today is right from uh, what God has given us. And uh, as you turn there, let me, let me show you this guy. I want to see if anyone recognizes him. Uh, anyone recognize this guy on the screen? Yeah, some people out here. If maybe you haven't, don't recognize him by picture, you might know him by name, Simon Sinek. Uh, Simon Sinek, he's a relatively uh, uh, popular author, speaker. Um, he kind of helps organizations, even in the corporate world, kind of think through strategy. Um, you might know, if you've been to Barnes & Noble, you might see one of his books that's real popular right now, a book called Start With Why. Start with why. And so this start with why is a a concept he's coined that's kind of really expanded his influence around our country and around the world. And um, um, basically the premise of start with why, to just kind of oversimplify it, is um, great organizations not only know what needs to be done, um, certainly a lot of us know what, or, or great organizations know, hey, there's a problem there. We know what to do to solve that problem. Simon Sinek actually says the best organizations not only know what to do, but they know why they're doing it. And so uh, the premise of Start With Why actually gets at the purpose. It gets at purpose. Why in the world are we doing what we're doing? Because the what's can change over time. The why can't ever change. Uh, this, this question, why? Uh, why is a heart-searching question? Why is a purpose-defining question? Why is always a motive-revealing question? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I make the decision I just made right there? Why is a very heart-searching question? And today, this question of why is going to search our hearts because here's the question we're asking today. Why am I following Jesus? Why am I following Jesus? And I know most of us sitting here don't think we need to listen to the rest of the half hour of the message because we already know the answer to that question. But here is what is so scary and so subtly subversive is that we are often blind to bad motives in our life. And asking the question today, why am I following Jesus? Or maybe you're here and you're not, you haven't followed Jesus yet. You're asking the question, why would I follow Jesus? This is the question we get at today. Why do we get at it? Last week, Pastor DJ so excellently preached to us a pivotal passage in the book of Acts. Remember, all of the book of Acts really hangs on this one verse we find right at the beginning, Acts 1.8, and it says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we had seen it through the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, uh, the ministry that was happening in the walls of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8 hits. There's a pivotal event that happens at the end of chapter 7. A guy named Stephen, a follower of Jesus, he's stoned for his faith. Uh, He's dead. And God uses this to scatter his people outside of just the walls of Jerusalem. And in scattering his people... God, sovereign over the suffering, is scattering the gospel message with it. And last week we saw, as a guy named Philip goes up to Samaria, and he begins to bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the gospel begins to flourish in Samaria. Now, we continue that story today, but as Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, as he zooms in on the work going on in Samaria... Um, in zooming in, 
he's going to focus um, on, on one guy's faith journey. Uh, it's a guy by the name of Simon. Um, Simon is a really, really hard guy to figure out in the Bible. Simon's a really hard guy to peg. But one thing we do know about Simon, regardless of where we believe Simon stood in his faith, is um, God is going to reveal in Simon a bad why for why he's following Jesus. God's going to reveal what the motives of Simon's heart were for, for uh, quote-unquote, believing in Jesus. And here's what God in his goodness is giving us today. It's a gift from God. That as we study the motives of why this Simon has followed Jesus, God's going to search our own hearts as well. And he's going to demand that we ask the question, why are you following my son? And here's the, de- here's the destination we're, we're going towards today. I want to give it to you right up front. And the destination is that all of us walking out of here would rally around this statement right here. A right heart pursues the person of Christ, not the perks of Christ. A right heart pursues the person of Christ, not the perks of Christ. Some of you are like, I don't know. I don't, I don't completely know about that yet. Well, let's have a three-part conversation today, and let's ask God to search our heart in this. What are the three parts of the conversation this passage is going to raise for us? Part number one is this. We're all in here going to acknowledge the possibility that we have wrong motives. We're all in here going to acknowledge the possibility that I have some wrong motives maybe when it comes to this following after Jesus. And you're like, how in the world can you have wrong motives to follow Jesus? Uh, The part two of our conversation is going to get to what those wrong motives are. Part two, we're going to understand what wrong motives for following Jesus might be as we look at what Simon says here. And then the third part here, we're going to know how we make wrong motives right today. We're just going to let God search our heart and show us what do we do today if there's just some wrong understandings of why in the world we follow Jesus. Let's pray and ask for God's help by his spirit right now, and let's get into God's word. Father, Lord, our hearts are wicked and deceptive. I know that about my own heart. Lord, I have a lot of um, what, I th- what I think on the surface are great motives, and Lord, when you, when you search deeper and when you, when you put your finger on things, you show me that maybe some things I thought were well-intended, well, well Lord, are actually... Um, some pretty self-serving motives. And so, God, I just ask you today, would by the power of your spirit, would you convict us? But, Lord, what's so great about your conviction um, is you convict us and you love us and you don't crush us under that, but you, lead a, you, you allow that conviction to lead us to repentance. God, please do that today. Lord, just show us the state of our heart. Oh, God, show us what you want to show us by the power of your spirit. God, I pray that you would just elevate your word here for your glory, that you would strip away anything that I would throw into this that would just distract or minimize or take away from it. God, speak to us in power as your word is proclaimed and as your spirit uses it in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at this guy named Simon. Acts chapter 8, verse 9. It says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced what? 
He'd previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his Magic, And so we're introduced to this guy named Simon. There's a couple things we're told about him. The first thing, uh, Simon is a magician. And now I want us to uh, expand. Well, first let me say this. Um, when I think of this guy named Simon, this is the guy, this is the guy who comes to mind. You guys recognize this guy? Uh, David Blaine, right? Um, but Simon is so much more than just a pick-a-card-any-card magician here. Uh, Other translations, you might have it in front of you, it calls him a sorcerer. There's probably some kind of dark forces going on here. Um, But all what we know about him, he's this magician, he's this sorcerer. Um, We also know that Simon is famous. He's a celebrity in Samaria. He has amazed the people, and it says from the greatest of the people to the least of the people, the people are amazed by this guy. He has done some things, like you see if you watch a David Blaine video, that when when it happens, everyone's jaw just drops, and everyone freezes, and everyone goes, what just happened here? This is what Simon has done. This is how he's made his living. This guy is a celebrity in Samaria. From the common people on the street to the wealthy elite, they all are amazed, and they all, and Simon has the attention of all of them. And then um, he's amazed the people so much that the people have actually um, attributed some deity statements to him. This guy is the power of God that is called great. Like Simon is a big deal in Samaria. Now, uh, verse 12, look at the first word. Tell me what the first word is of verse 12. Luke is doing something here, and we got to feel what he's doing. He has just set up who Simon is. Let me tell you about this Simon. I think three times in just the first couple of verses we read, it says, he amazed the people, he amazed the people, he amazed the people. He had their attention. This guy is the center of attention. He is the main attraction. And now Luke goes, but show stealers coming. But when they, the people of Samaria, believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip in seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was, the amazing one is now amazed. So Philip shows up, and we were told that last week. Philip shows up in Samaria, and he begins preaching just the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. He just shows up with the simple gospel message, and, and, and it steals the show. Everyone who had been so focused and amazed and their attention fixed on Simon is now, what, what, what's this message? Hold on, tell me more about this. I'm a sinner, I've wronged a holy God, and and there's a remedy for that through knowing Jesus Christ, and all of the attention goes over here. Even, it says, even who believed? Even Simon goes, "What, what is this new teaching? And he begins to follow Philip, and the one who has always amazed everyone, seeing signs and great miracles performed, He is now the one amazed. Now, let me kind of give us our first point here. Let me explain 
why I say the first point I did. The first point, I may be blind to some bad motives for why I follow Jesus. Where in the world am I getting that? Here's why Simon is such a hard guy to figure out. We've just been told right there in the Bible that Simon believed. And then he was baptized to go public with that faith. Awesome. Like, we would, be, we would like, have him in the office doing a God at work story on him right now. He'd be on the stage sharing his testimony. This once famous guy who was into all this dark, weird stuff has, has come over to the good side. He's believed in Jesus Christ. It, does it not say in the text before us that Simon has believed? You want to know something crazy, though, as the story goes on? Here's what Peter's going to say to him later. Your heart's not right, dude. Your heart's not right. Then Peter's going to say something even like stronger to him. Hey, you need, to, you need to pray. You need to repent, and you need to pray that God would forgive you, if possible, for the sin. We'll get to that if possible. This is the tension the passage raises with this guy named Simon, and the passage never really lets us out of the tension. Was Simon a legitimate believer? Maybe. Was he merely professing faith in Christ with no intention in the glory of Christ at all, but only selfish gain? There's certainly some of that here. I may be blind to some bad motives for why I followed Jesus. We're not yet to the part of the conversation that gets at what those bad motives might be. As we look at where Simon does here, we'll see those. But we all just got to start with a sobering reminder, a sobering fact here today. There may be some bad motives. For why at one time I, I quote unquote, made a decision to follow Christ. And, you, and I know what we're thinking, because this is, I'm, it's Tuesday morning, I'm sitting with this passage, I kind of got the first point nailed out, and I went, yeah, that's not me though, not me. Some of all y'all sitting out here, but not me. And like you can ask my wife, like Tuesday was just one of the darkest days I've had in a while. As the Lord just started to root out some stuff in my heart of maybe some things of how I'm just using Jesus as a means to a greater thing. It was a hard, ugly day. And here's the thing about bad motives, right? Often when we have bad motives and things, we're often some, like some of the last people to know it in ourselves. I'll do something, husbands, maybe you can relate. I'll do something, I'll say something, I'll, and I, I think my motives are great, and I'm just, wow, what a great guy. And my wife will kind of do that half smile, like cocked head look at me. I'm like, what? What? I'm like, that was a good thing I just did there. And she, yeah, but, but why did you do it? Often the people closest to us see some ulterior motives, some bad motives and things quicker than we do. And we just got to acknowledge as we start today, gosh, I could be off on some of this motive stuff of why I'm following Jesus. So we've established it's possible in our own heart. Now, what are, what are wrong motives, what are bad motives for following after Christ? Pick it up in verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, 
who came down and prayed for them that they might what? We all got that? We hear that? That they might, that they might what? I just need to make sure we're all there. That they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, have you ever watched a movie? Because we're in the middle of a story here. We're in the middle of a story. We all got to acknowledge it. We're in the middle of a story. Amen? We're all in the middle of a story? Have you ever watched a movie, and the story's progressing, and then they'll freeze frame all the action in the movie? And a narrator, either like a voiceover or someone out of the scene will kind of step out and will explain, let me tell you what's going on here. And then he'll step back into the movie and action and it'll all pick up. You know what I'm talking about? We got to freeze frame the story here for a second. Because these couple verses just raised a what could be a significantly confusing theological issue right here. What, what is that issue? Here's the heart of it. When do we receive the Holy Spirit? When do we receive the Holy Spirit as Jesus followers? Anyone else wondering about that after reading that? Like 10 of you are. Okay. Um, we'll talk, okay? Five-minute freeze frame on what in the world I believe is going on here. Uh, two camps. When do we receive the Holy Spirit? Traditionally, uh, to kind of simplify it, there's some variations within these two camps, but two camps. Uh, let's call it a one-step camp and a two-step camp. What do I mean by a one-step camp? Um, one, one step. When do we receive the Holy Spirit? Um, um, kind of traditional evangelical Christian belief, you, you're indwelt with the Spirit, you receive the Spirit of God upon salvation in Jesus Christ. Faith is birthed in your heart, indwelt with the Spirit of God. Amen? And what we believe as we see throughout the course of the New Testament, um, we believe we see that one step is the teaching of this church. And we believe the burden of proof in the New Testament teaches an indwelling of the Spirit of God upon salvation. Dakota, let's go to those verses that we see throughout Scripture here. Um, Romans 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then he says something. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so there's an element of, of upon faith in Jesus Christ, belonging to Christ, the Spirit and dwells us. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Ephesians 1, 13. One, one of what I believe is the clearest on this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, what was it? The gospel of your salvation. What did you do? You believed in him, and upon believing, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Galatians 3, 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How do we receive the Spirit by hearing with faith, Galatians 3.14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. It's the teaching of this church that we're indwelt with the Spirit of God upon faith being birthed in our heart. Now, you should be saying, and, and some of you maybe are coming from churches or grew up kind of in what, what I'm calling the two-step camp, that, that no, 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 no. You can, you can have believed in Jesus Christ, you can be saved, and then later there's, a, there's a, what's sometimes called a baptism of the Holy Spirit when you receive the Spirit in your life. And you're like, Pastor, look at it. It's right there in Acts chapter 8. How do you, how do you deny that? Um, 
when we study the book of Acts, and we said this on the very first week of the study, we have to remember there's a pre- prescriptive, descriptive debate of the book of Acts. What do we mean by that? There are elements of the book of Acts that are prescribing for us how, um, how like, this applies to the church in every age and all the time, and this is, this is a norm. This should be a norm throughout the ages of the church. There's descriptive aspects of the book of Acts, though, where it's Luke describing some unique things that happen, and it's kind of the early church begin here. Here's what I believe is going on in this passage. I believe what God is doing right here, the Samaritans had believed, they had been baptized, and now they don't receive the Holy Spirit until the apostles come and lay hands on them. I believe God's using a unique method for a unique moment in the history of the church. In Acts 2, were they believers and then the Spirit came on them? Absolutely. Acts chapter 8, why is God using a unique moment for a unique method here? Understand the context of this. Um, on, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being like they were BFFs for life, the Jews and the Samaritans, 1 or a 10? Zero, thank you. <laughs> Negative 5. These people, the, the early Christians coming out of a deeply Jewish-rooted faith, they, the animosity between Samaritans and Jews off the charts. And now you have Philip. He goes up here. He brings the gospel message, and they believe they're now part of the family. I believe Acts chapter 8 is a, um, to use this loosely, a Samaritan Pentecost. The apostles hear that the Samaritans have believed the gospel and they send two of their top on the first train north to go, we got to see this for ourselves. What is going on? Peter and John come up, they lay their hands, and once you know it, Samaritans are indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit falls on them. And now, what God is doing is protecting the unity of this early family in great ways so that there's apostolic, there's apostolic statement when people go, no, Samaritans, they can't be Christians, they can't be. Peter and John, the apostles, go, no, 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 listen, we were there. We laid our hands, spirit came down. I believe this is a unique method by God for a unique moment. Now, if you grew up believing you could be saved and then you're indwelt with the Spirit later, you might bristle at this teaching a bit. You might feel like it, it diminishes the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, no, no, no. We're not diminishing the power of the Holy Spirit in any way whatsoever. Like the teaching of this church, you, get to know, you come to know Jesus, you're indwelt with the Spirit on you. It's the Spirit of God who works the fruit of the Spirit out of your life. It's the Spirit of God who empowers you to use the gifts of the Spirit to serve the church. Um, um, but you might go, Lindalis, I was saved, and then I had this powerful moment with the Holy Spirit that came after my salvation. How do you explain that? And it's the teaching of this church that believes that you're indwelt with the Spirit upon faith in Jesus Christ, but that Spirit can come on you and fill you for power to witness in great ways over and over and over and over and over again throughout your life. I've had it. Sitting on the beach in Lake Michigan in the presence of the Spirit of God overwhelmed me in such a way that hours later, when I walked into my house, the first thing my wife said was, what happened to you? I don't believe I received the Spirit on that day. I believe the Spirit of God filled me in a unique way in that moment. One receiving of the Spirit upon salvation, 
many fillings or the Spirit coming on us for power to witness, for assurance of our faith, for joy unspeakable over and over and over again throughout our life. Amen? Now, freeze frame. Ready back, back into the action? Because remember, don't let this trump the entire story of what God's telling here. Back to the action. This is what happens. Apostles come. They lay their hands on. And now Simon goes, what just happened here? Look, look at it. Back in the text. Then they laid their hands on them, verse 17, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, what does he do? He reaches for his wallet. When, when he sees something just happened here, he's going, I've dealt in powers throughout my whole life, but there's a power of powers that just happened here. And he, the first thing he does is he reaches for his wallet, verse 19, saying, Give me this power also set up so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I submit to us right here that Simon is more interested in the perks of Christ and powers that come from Christ than he is in the person of Christ. that something has just surfaced in Simon's heart where he wasn't treasuring Jesus at all. This wasn't about the glory of Christ. This was about selfish gain for him. Remember, he's built his life on amazing people with powers. Now he's going, there's a new cool one. Let me add it to the arsenal. This will amaze people. And look at what Peter does with this moment. But Peter said to him, verse 20, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Point number two is this. My heart isn't right if I want the perks Jesus gives instead of the person that he is. Now, Again, let's be careful to not assume that this isn't, doesn't apply to us. We are people conditioned to making perk-based decisions. Husbands, can I ask you a question here? Do you ever come home at the end of the day, and uh, maybe your wife had done some shopping that day, and she uh, runs you through a rendition of the Price is Right game? How, mu how much do you think I paid for this? Um, $24. $24? No, I had a BOGO and then a 50% off and $10 Kohl's cash. I got this for $3.47. And I'm like, did we need it? Yeah. <laughs> She knew that one was coming, by the way. <laughs> um, we're used to making perks-based decisions. Uh, my wife and I shop at Kroger. Why do we, not because Kroger, we believe, is just exponentially greater than any other grocery store chain. Why do we shop at Kroger? Fuel points. <laughs> and you know, if you buy like gift cards there, and it's crazy. Fuel points. Or, or have, you been have you been exposed to this place? Costco? Somewhere in this book, I con I'm convinced it says, this place will be in heaven. 
I mean, I was once grocery store lost and now I've been found. <laughs> the first way, the first, we'll come back to the story, okay? First week, we are in Costco. It's a Saturday, and at the end of every aisle, they had the sample station. I had a newfound purpose in grocery shopping. I used to, like, at the turn of every aisle, just drag my feet. Now, there's a destination at the end of every aisle that I'm getting to. We are used to perks-based decision-making. Is it possible that our following after of Jesus is just solely based on the perks he can give us instead of the person that he is? I want to sh- show what I'm saying to us in this way. Um, here's you. Is Jesus merely a vehicle for you to get some treasure that you want? So is Jesus merely a vehicle so that you can have joy? Is he a vehicle so you can have peace? Is he a vehicle so you can have hope? Is he a vehicle so that you can have some sort of a personal selfish gain? Is he a vehicle to eternal life? You're like, hold on, eternal life? Isn't that a perk we're all after? Yes, it is, but I think here's the correct order. Here's you. Jesus is the treasure. And the byproducts of knowing Jesus as the treasure is joy and is hope and is peace. And the byproduct of knowing Jesus as a treasure is, yes, we get eternal life with him. But what makes eternal life awesome? It's Jesus, our treasure, with him, unhindered for sin, forever, worshiping him forever. Jesus is the treasure, folks. And according to this passage, and I believe by Peter's rebuke, we're revealed that for Simon, Jesus is not the treasure. He's, mere, he's merely some avenue to more powers in his pocket. And he goes, how much? How much? I want that. Now, let's just let the Spirit of God search our heart right here because believers around the world don't have to wrestle with this question like maybe we do on the south side of India here. Believers around the world aren't following Jesus in certain countries for earthly perks. They're like, earthly perks? I confess Jesus, my head's gone. I confess Jesus, my family disowns me. Earthly perks. I, I submit to us today, still on our, kind of our south side of Indianapolis, um, relatively conservative Christian area, area There can be subtle perks for being known amongst a faith family. There can be perks to the business we do. There can be perks to the positions of influence it gives us. And I'm not knocking that. I'm not saying those are bad things in and of themselves. I'm saying they're bad motives if we're using Jesus, Jesus as a vehicle to get those things. Is it, is it clear what I'm saying? So the third part of the conversation is, what do we do? What do we do if right now there's some conviction going on in our heart to say, Jesus, have I used you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the one that the rocks cry out and worship, have I used you as a vehicle to something I think I treasure greater than you? What do we do if our heart's convicted right now of this? Look at the very first word of verse 22. Repent. 
Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. It's that whole if possible thing. This isn't, depend, this isn't a picture of God going, hmm, am I going to forgive Simon for this or not? Peter's in this exact same position we are, going, where is Simon's heart in this? And he knows Simon has to repent of his sin and truly turn to Jesus Christ in complete faith in order to receive that forgiveness. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Third point, if my heart isn't right, I must repent. Is there anything in your heart that merely sees Jesus as a vehicle to some greater treasure instead of Jesus as the treasure himself? Is there anything in your heart that treasures something other than him more? If so, the word for us today is that we repent. And I think this passage right here, these couple of verses help us understand even how we go about repenting. Repent, therefore, what's the word he says? Of this what? Repent of what? Of this wickedness. What, what does repentance really look like on this? Uh, the first thing we need to understand about repentance is we need to call sin what God calls it. It's wickedness. And it's not a word we use much. But there's something that's got to reveal our heart to say that if I'm simply using Jesus as a vehicle to some perks in this earthly life, uh, the heart of that to use the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as a mere vehicle to get something for selfish gain is wickedness. And we won't ever repent of anything. Call it this sin, what we're talking about, or any sin in our life. We won't ever truly repent until we're, until we're sitting there and we're willing to call it what God calls it. God, this is wickedness. You're right. You are right. Call it what it is. It's wickedness. And then two, ask the Lord to change your heart and free you from the sin. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. We've called it wickedness. We say we need this. God, this has got to change in our heart. And we say, Lord, you are the only one powerful enough to change a heart. God, change my heart. Help me no longer treasure something more than simply you. God, change my heart. Help me no longer just use you, use uh, the community of faith, use anything that I might be using as some way to get a, another step up in this earthly life. Lord, you are, are not the means to an end. Jesus Christ, you are the end. You are not a vehicle to treasure. Jesus Christ, you are the treasure. A right heart pursues the person of Christ not the perks of Christ. And again, well, aren't we all after the eternal life? Absolutely, but only through treasuring Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the byproducts of that come from there. Here's why I want to close today. The worship team's going to come out. 
And one of the greatest ways that our heart can be changed if we've treasured anything else other than Jesus, one of the greatest ways our heart can be changed if we have used Jesus as a vehicle to some greater treasure, listen, what we have to do today is we have to restore the awe simply of who Jesus is. When our hearts are gripped by the awe of who he is, we, our hearts cry out, Yes, just him. I just want him. When our hearts are captivated by the awe simply of the person of Christ, our soul screams, yes. He's the one I was created to worship. And we go, Jesus, perks or not in this earth, you're enough. And if everything else is stripped and pulled away from me in this life, I still have you, Christ, my treasure. So what I want to do in our closing, just stand with me right now. What I want to do as we close. Let's ask God's spirit in these moments as we sing to Jesus, as we hear the word, what the word says about who Christ our treasure is. Let's ask the spirit of God to restore the awe. Not in what he can give us, but purely in him, the giver. Not in what we can get from him, but just purely in him. Oh, Jesus, by the power of your spirit right now, restore the awe as we worship him for who he is, as we hear what the word says about Christ our treasure. Worship team lead us.